Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. My guest in this episode uh, was a member, an inaugural member of the West Coast Eagles, played in their very first game back in 1987. Uh, went on to do great things for West Coast. Uh, and even switched codes a little bit later in his sporting career. Since then, has gone on to uh, carve out uh, a very successful career as a sports journalist uh, all over the Perth media and so much more. So it's time to say hello and welcome to uh, Adrian Barra Barrich. How are you, Barra? Timmy, great to speak to you, mate. I've been uh, coveting being on this show because <laughs> most Sundays when I leave the uh, the Seven Newsroom, I flick it on to hear who you've got on and <laughs> catch up with uh, all the great stories. Uh, and also the Baron O'Day connection, mate. Uh, Joe O'Day, if I can send a cheerio, I'm sorry about this. Uh, my dad passed away recently and he did, him and his team did the most magnificent job for my dad. Um, and I, I'll never I'll never forget that if he's listening because it was so beautiful and uh, uh, he went all out. So mm. thank you, mate. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever be in that situation when I was listening to your show, but then I was suddenly. And uh, it's great to have someone like Baron O'Day on board to help you out. Yeah, it certainly is, uh, Barra. And look, I want to ask you about uh, the role that your dad played uh, in your life a little bit later because he was a, uh, a larger-than-life character in many ways, wasn't he? Yeah, definitely. Uh, mm. He used to... We used to joke that he was um, the right-hand man to the Pope in Western Australia, and uh, that's how he lived his life, which, as an ex-footballer, could always be a bit challenging, couldn't it, Tim? (laughs) I can imagine. Uh, I'll get you to tell us more in due time. Hey, Barrett, you grew up in Canberra. What was that like? I don't want to give your age away, but let's just say, uh, you know, some of your early memories might have started to form late 60s and then certainly into the 70s. What was it like growing up in Canberra as a youngster? Yeah, it was a great adventure, actually, because 63 was when I was born, and uh, I think there was uh, only about 5,000 people in Canberra at that time, so yeah. it was the, the expansion of the place as the government took over, and they put in the, the lake, and Lake Billy Griffin, and all the rest of it, so I was one of the first guys to go through Morris Brothers in Canberra, um, sort of one of the inaugural students, basically, and, and that was exciting to do that. Um, my dad was over there to work for the government. Right. They are a West, we are a West Australian family, um, but, geez, it's so different from Perth because there's no beaches, one, and also... Um, you didn't even have a lake so, there at first. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's, and it's freezing as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, my mum spent, she spent 25 years there and she said, that's it, I've had enough of the cold weather, I'm going back to Perth. So yeah, right. W- once I moved back, they all followed me basically and, yep. and we've been back ever since, so another 30 years. What, what was your dad, John, doing at the time to, uh, to take the family to Canberra? Well, he, was, he worked for a lot of the prime ministers, actually. He worked for seven prime ministers. So he worked for right? the prime, prime minister's department um, all the way through. And at one stage there, we moved to Thailand and lived in Bangkok because he was part of the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization called CETO. Um, that was interesting, uh, going to school in Thailand as the only sort of Aussie bloke there. Oh, there's another Aussie kid. He was a real larrikin, so that was nice. And mm. mainly it was an international school, but... 
So my dad was working for the government, and uh, I guess he call, you'd call him a diplomat, I suppose, public mm. servant, and that's why we're that's why we're over there, and that's why my grounding was in rugby rather than footy, and I yeah. didn't move to footy till till I was about seventeen. Yeah, so you were messing around with the egg shaped ball for most of your childhood. Yeah, and and loving it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, I, I eventually, I found out. I worked out that being in the back line in Canberra in freezing conditions, and when the ball never came out to you, and I saw my mates jumping around, jumping on each other, having a good time, I thought, "What am I playing rugby for? <laughs> I'm going to the AFL." And that was the beginning of my career in the AFL. But I had to learn to handball. I had to learn to bounce the ball. And when I was 17, so that was all a bit strange. So I was never <laughs> great. I was never a great handballer, Tim. I can tell you. <laughs> Your uh, instinct was to chuck it. Firstly, yeah. yeah, or palm someone off. Actually, that anyway. was my, <laughs> yeah. my instinct was to palm someone off. Get out of the way, pal. So I had a yeah. good don't argue. The old Dustin Martin day and don't argue. Don't worry about that. What sort of a student were you? You mentioned that you were one of the first uh, graduates of the Marist College. There, what were you like as a student? Well, fair to say, I started out beautifully. I was school captain in primary school, and you know, I was winning all the sort of prizes for uh, religious studies and being the best Catholic boy. Might have gone a bit off the rails towards the end of my career, as as you do when you sort of swing one way, you end up swinging the other way uh, eventually, don't you? And rebelling a bit, so which is a great shock to my uh, dad, who's mm. you know, uh, no joke. He would have been. He, he was like he's on the right of Genghis Khan, my dad, in terms of his <laughs> politics, and. Uh, and so I always had a, an interesting um, conversation with him about yeah. uh, where the world was heading. So, yeah. no, I was pretty good at school and I got through okay and I got into uni and then I decided to come to Western Australia to go to university in yep. the States, St. Thomas yep. More College in Netherlands. And, and that was a fantastic couple of years there as well. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's talk about your dad and uh, look, yeah, condolences for his passing in recent weeks. But tell us, what, what was it like growing up with someone who was a, a very vocal, proud Catholic man. Yeah, and he wore, wore on his sleeve too. And um, I think you've got to respect people that um, have the courage of their convictions. And whilst, you know, he didn't always agree with him in terms of his politics, um, because he was such a right-wing Catholic um, and, and very orthodox, I suppose you'd say, you'd sort of have to admire some people that never deviated. And even if their son was mm. deviating or their daughter or... Some, one of their friends, they still they still loved you, but they never really embraced the way you were heading. So, mm, yeah, mm. it was it was tricky. He was away a lot too because he was on. I, I, when I did his funeral, I think I worked out he was part of eighteen different organisations at one time, wow. and mostly he was president. He didn't like just sitting on the bus. He wanted to drive the bus, and he'd be out the front, <laughs> and he'd always be the secretary or the president. So. <laughs> My dear old mum, I don't reckon she saw a lot of him in the last sort of 20 years. Um, yeah. He was always going to meetings or being on phone hookups or ringing the mm. archbishop or ringing somebody to plot, plot some strategy as to how to... And a lot of them were lost causes too, you know what I mean? You, we're never going to win the sort of... Um, uh, the vote for the same-sex marriage vote or anything like that or the euthanasia vote, but because the Catholic Church dictated that that's where you sat, he fought the good fight... Even though I would say to him, Dad, it's it's getting through, mate. It's modern times. It's going to happen. It's we're going to change the laws, and he would fight right up to the last moment, and then and then move on from there. Yeah. And did you challenge him a lot as a, a youngster and as a teenager, Barr, or did you just sort of accept it and let it go and stay stay quiet? Early doors, I was uh, I was on board, obviously, because I was at that Catholic college. But later yeah. on, when you start working out how the work world works and 
you meet a, a broad range of people, you realise, hang on, yeah, can't be too judgmental. Um, yeah. And so I sort of drifted a bit, and 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 you, we did have long discussions, but mm. eventually you sort of it was the old, you know, when you go to dad's house, don't talk about sex, yeah. marriage, or religion. <laughs> you know, go zones, politics, yeah. yeah. You could, yeah, footy was good. Footy was good. He used to love the West Coast Eagles, so yeah. he'd always be there in support. And uh, he loved the number thirty-eight that I used to wear, and yep. all the rest of it. Yep. And the Perth Footy Club as well was a big part of our family as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, your move west there. Nineteen eighty-four. Uh, how did that come about? That you make the move west uh, to uh, to pull on the Perth jumper. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm not actually sure why I decided at that time that it was the right time to move home or move back to Western Australia. I always had that affinity because having my family had been from Perth. My dad came in 1950 on a boat from Germany uh, as a refugee, uh, you know, ch- chased out by Tito basically there, the communist leader, and wanted mm-hmm. to get away from him. So his family landed in Fremantle. Still, He still remembers the... Um, did you know that the... Um, the dingo was on the flour mill when he arrived. He said there was a big red dingo on the flour mill in 1950. So Is that right? All those stories of Bondi painting it. Obviously, was worth <laughs> I think Bondi might have been having a lend of us there. He might have uh, touched it up. Yeah, but he definitely exactly. didn't paint it because it was there Not in 1950. And, and then he ended up much Northern older than we thought. I don't think so. Yeah, exactly, mate. <laughs> oh, he actually fronted Bondi about that once, and uh, we had a funny conversation Is that about right? It. What did Bondi say? Yeah. He uh, he said, oh, well, you know, I might have uh, put a bit of sauce on that, Barry, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. So, but he was such a character, he, you could just uh, let him get away with anything, old Bondi in those days, because it wasn't long after he'd just won the, yeah. the America's Cup. So yeah. do no wrong. whatever he said, we believed. Mm. But then the old man got on a train to um, Northern. They took him to Northern. So Dad's come from the, he was born in the Eternal City, Rome, and he's ended up in Northern and he, as a 12-year-old. And he had to get used to flies and the heat and uh, and meeting meeting indigenous people and it must have been a massive change. I love those stories of immigrants, you know. Yep. And and the fact that there was lots of rabbits in Northern, so once the Italians lobbed there, there was no rabbit problem after that. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of rabbit stews on the on the they, the cooker. Yeah, they cleaned up. They cleaned up the rabbit problem. So mm. so Dad ended up there and um, and. Uh, and that's how we started in Perth, and uh, and I came, decided I'd better come back and and be part of it. And then my family eventually followed me back. My dad yeah. retired at 47, and decided to come back to Perth as well. So I came here to study ostensibly, and then the West Coast Eagles got invented, and suddenly I was in in the VFL, and I was thinking, jeepers, yeah. it never even occurred to me to play yeah. at the highest level. But they pulled me. I was driving home one day, and they announced the team, and. Nearly trashed my car because I was in it. <laughs> you, well, you had no idea. No, no, because I was sort of. I think the squad started at thirty, and then we went to thirty-five. So we had thirty-five players out of the, mostly out of the waffle. And because uh, I was sort of in the bottom group, I suppose they they basically, I basically heard about it on the radio, and I ring up mm. Graham Moss, who's the general manager, and he said, oh, "Have I been? Uh, am I going? What, what's going on?" And. Uh, and welcome to the West Coast Eagles. And 
Later on, I signed my contract at Clontarf Aboriginal College on Mossy's Bonnet, I remember. So <laughs> they weren't putting a lot of money into me, Tim. <laughs> that was the office at that stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it was like. We were like lepers. We were the yeah. first football lepers because they yeah. absolutely hated us. The Victorians hated us because they, they just wanted our money. They didn't want us to win any flags. Yep. And the Waffle teams hated us because they thought we were destroying their competition, yeah. even though we, most of us came out of the Waffle. Yeah. And we weren't allowed to train at any of the Waffle grounds. We had to, um, so we trained at Aquinas College under sort of, you know, basic lights that they had there. And then we trained at Mount Lawley Teachers College where we used to get changed in the change rooms. Uh, it It was unbelievable what we had to go through. And that's, I think that's what built the resilience of the West Coast Eagles those, yep. those early years, what you had to put up with, the way we were treated, the chip on our shoulder that we developed to stick it up the Vicks and then take their trophy off them five years later. Love it. Barrow, we'll get into that more, but we need to take a break just for the moment. So uh, stick around. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, the early days of the West Coast Eagles right after the break. Adrian Barrett is our guest. This is WA's Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Adrian Barrich is our special guest in this episode. Barrett, just before we get on to those uh, early days of the West Coast Eagles, uh, we were just reflecting on your time at Perth and uh, your move over from Canberra uh, to play for Perth, but you nearly ended up at Claremont, right? I did, actually. I think Claremont thought I'd actually agreed to go there. Yep. Um, what had happened... Uh, Chubby Styles, uh, Perth legend, and also Ian Miller, Perth legend, had come to Perth, come to Canberra to meet me and uh, meet my family. And uh, they met my girlfriend, actually, who was Miss uh, ACT Football at the time. And I think they were quite was, enamored sorry, of my she girlfriend. Was, she was what? Miss Miss ACT Football, you know, like because yeah, right. it was Miss yeah. Canberra, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I think they were quite taken with us, so I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason I got I got recruited to to the Perth Footy Club. Right, whatever works. But I, I yeah, <laughs> play so to your strengths. <laughs> the Tigers flew me over though, and um, I went to Rottnest with Mossy on his boat, and we caught crayfish. And I thought, how good's this? Graham Moss, Brownlow medalist, take me out to Rotto, catching crayfish. Meets, met some of the boys, some of the superstars from uh, Claremont. And for some reason, just at the last moment, I went to the Perth Footy Club again to see Miller and, um, and Chubby Styles and that, Jack O'Day. And uh, uh, they said, look, we're on a journey here. Uh, we've got this great young coach, uh, Ian Miller, great fella. Who was, he's one of the best blokes in footy. Yep. And we're on the way up. We've got Rhett Baines and Earl Spaulding, and we've got all these young stars coming through. We, you could be part of the re-emergence of one of the great clubs that won three premierships in the 60s and should have won three premierships in the 70s. You could lead us out of the wilderness alongside Robert Wiley and Peter Bazusto. Yeah, wow. And I thought, That's a strong sell. Yeah, good that. I can be part of some huge, you know, re-emergence of this power club. And so I said, right, I'll play for you blokes. And I had to tell Mossy that he was, no one was more surprised than him when I turned down the the Tigers. How did he take it? 
at the time, well, he's a pretty philosophical bloke. If you know, he's, he, uh, sat, he's not, he never gets that fired up, Mossy. So he was very understanding, but he was a bit surprised that I decided to go to the cellar dwellers. <laughs> and as it turned out, uh, they won a few flags after that that I could have played in, and, and the Demons didn't. But I'll tell you why that worked well for me later on. But I did enjoy the Perth Footy Club, and they're such great people, really down-to-earth people. And yep. um, whilst we didn't have the success, uh, just playing with boyhood heroes like Robert Wiley and mm. Peter Basasto was fantastic. Uh, yeah. And then, but then when the Eagles came in, it was actually worked in my favour because there was a quota. You could only take, I think it was five or six players from each Waffle Club. So at Claremont, they had... A, you know, a myriad of stars and guys like uh, Daryl Panizza didn't even get drafted and I was thinking jeepers if he's not getting picked uh, by the inaugur- in the inaugural squad whereas at Perth there was a, only a couple of blokes and it was only Wiley and I that actually went into the inaugural Eagles squad so it kind of worked in my favour a bit that um, I was able to become part of the West Coast Eagles and play in their inaugural game and just be there for every magic moment Yeah, which I, I promise we'll get to in just a sec but were you ever dirty? Am I right in thinking you came second in the club best and fairest in your three years there at Laugh Lane, but got pipped for best and fairest in three seasons? Is that right? Were you ever dirty? You didn't get the number one award? Or at least one of those. I, years. I, I did. Ultimately, I won one in 1994. Oh, there you go. But I came. But I came second to uh, Robert Wiley a number of times. I think yep. he won. I think he might have won nine best and fairest at Perth. <laughs> I think every year he played at Perth, he won the best and fairest. Yeah, fair and enough. he went past he went past the great Barry Cable in terms of wow. winning um, butcher yep. medals at uh, the Perth Footy Club. So, you know. I wouldn't. I don't reckon I could carry <laughs> carry Robert Wiley's shoes, boots to the club, to the game. You know what I mean? That's yeah. how good he was. So yeah. very happy yeah. to uh, to cop that on the chin. Sure. All right. So let's go to 1987 then. The historic first game for the West Coast Eagles. What are your memories of that? Ah, oh, mate, such great memories. When they closed down Subi and bowled over the joint, it was such a sad moment because uh, we were all us ex-players were able to look back to all those magic moments and running out in front of 30-odd thousand people in our new Eagles gear with their big golden wings on the back and wearing golden shorts and running through the Eaglets who weren't just young cheer girls. They were mature women. And I can tell you what, it was they were outstanding. It was quite incredible just how beautiful and how wonderful they were. And we were running through them and we're onto the oval and we got we were thirty odd points down at three quarter time against one of the uh, you know the traditional clubs Richmond and we yep. stormed home and won our first ever game and set the course I reckon for the West Coast Eagles for the future. It just showed the the grit and the determination to get through and just just will ourselves across the line. And without doubt, I've spoken to Bikes about this before, and Trevor Nisbet of the CEO and the rest of that. There's no doubt the die was cast early for the West Coast Eagles that yeah. they weren't going to be trifled with. They could dig deep. Um, the only drama for me was I ended up with a broken cheekbone in my in the first game. Can you believe it? Mm. First ever game. Trevor, Trevor Poole's giving me the biggest dirty elbow you've ever seen in history. Yeah. Didn't get reported or anything, and I've ended up on the bench with a broken cheekbone and in hospital getting surgery. And actually, I'll never forget Michael Thompson, our good mate Michael Thompson, was the reporter. And he came in to see me the next day. And in those days, you could bring the camera into the hospital. So he's actually in the the ward. (laughs) Tomo's in the ward there with the camera. And I had this thing on my cheek that said, uh, do not press. 
and it was a piece of tape on my cheek. And Jesus, it looked hilarious, you know. And so Tom, I, he couldn't wait to get me on camera and talk Put about, that. you know, breaking my cheekbone in the first game. But I, I fooled him, mate. I pulled it off before the interview. So <laughs> he was filthy too. Oh, he knew that was, the, that was the money shot. So that was, our first, that was my first game for the Eagles and the Eagles' first ever game. And people will never forget it who were there because it was so important to the club. You played 14 games in that uh, first year. In 1987, I, I, the record books at least will probably show that your your best game was the final round. Four goals, 25 possessions against St Kilda. But tell me what it was like going back and forth uh, over East all the time, particularly given how hostile the Vicks were towards a team from oh, Perth. Oh, yeah. Make sure I tell you about uh, getting those, uh, getting three Brownlow votes in that last game that you just mentioned because it's a very <laughs> funny on, story there. Yeah. All right, I'll go straight to it. <laughs> that game, okay... So I'm at the Brownlow Medal. It's 1987, right? Yeah. And we're all sitting on the table there. In those days, if you've got a vote, you have to scull the beer and all this sort yep. of stuff. And you <laughs> see, you know, it was a silly tradition. Anyway, in that game, so at that time on the scoreboard, uh, Tony Lockett and I think it was either Platten or Dipper. I think it was Platten, actually. They, they were tied for the Brownlow Medal, right? Yep. And we were playing St Kilda. And so everyone was hanging on this game, and obviously the AFL put it that way to create drama. And the the actual last votes were three votes. West Coast Eagles, and which meant that there had been a tie, a historic tie for the Brownlow. So the whole place just went berserk, and noise was everywhere, and everyone's going stupid on the coverage. And no one actually heard my name come out, Adrian Barrich, because they're all celebrating this amazing (laughs) tie between these two superstars. So I must have gone all right in that game if I got three votes against uh, some of those blokes. But but did you you get the next three beers then? Yeah, I don't know what happened after that, but I remember it was a big <laughs> night. But, mate, you were, so, you were so spot on about the way you were asking about the way we were treated. The West Coast Eagles were treated absolutely disgracefully when we came into the competition. Yep. We had, yeah. to, we had to, to enter the competition. Victorian footy was basically bankrupt. WA footy wasn't going that great either, by the way, but Victorian footy was bankrupt. And they looked to us to be a cash cow. So we had to pay $4 million dollars in those days, $4 million to enter the competition. And then for every um, home game, we had to pay the expenses of the club that was coming over. So we had to pay their uh, airfare expenses and their accommodation expenses to come and play us. How's that for a deal, right? It's incredible. So no you put them we up somewhere, lo- crap. <laughs> oh, man, and we were losing money hand over fist. It was, we were hemorrhaging money. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And when we went to Victoria, we were treated like absolute scum. You know, we, we weren't allowed to train on any of their grounds. Uh, if we played, say, at one of those regional grounds like Moorabbin or, you know, uh, Windy Hill or whatever, we'd go into the showers after the game and there'd be no hot water. They would have turned off the hot water. Mm. Um, so we had to have freezing cold showers in the middle of a Melbourne winter before we flew home. And some blokes didn't even have showers. They just got mud, they'd mud all over and they just put their suit on and got back on the plane and you could hear them... <laughs> You know, all the, all the mud crumbling as we were, as we were sitting in That's our seats. That's amazing. And then I'll never forget going to St Kilda once, and they had that ground, Moorabbin, yep. which was a, Just a, a rabbit place to go. Yeah. yeah, and it was the most beautiful sunny day in, in Melbourne at the time. And we went out on the ground, and it was fully waterlogged. And we're going, what's going on here? And that, what they'd done, 
is they knew that West Australians loved dry surfaces and we you loved using our pace and all that sort of stuff. So they left the sprinklers on the oval all night just yeah. to fully waterlog the, the oval. And so when we got out there, we were playing in an absolute bog heap. And I don't know if we, we ended up winning or not, but I remember that one of the O'Connell brothers nearly drowned when he got knocked out by Wow Jones in the middle and his face yeah. went into the pool of water and he actually nearly drowned. Is that right? So, so that was the way that we were actually treated by the Victorians. Yeah. You know, we'd, we'd come into our change rooms at half time, and the little league would be in there getting changed. Mm. So you come in and there's all these kids sort of sitting next to your bag and putting their gear on and doing a bit of a warm-up. And they go, what are you kids doing in here? They, they push the kids in there. On an Anzac day, we'd, we'd run out and they'd be playing the last post at Victoria Park just to take the mickey out of us, you know, when we ran out. <laughs> For a bit of humour, you know, before Anzac day was massive. Yeah. Uh, that we got treated so badly. But yeah. you know what? You know what, Tim? You know what they did? That really made... Mm. Oh, not only that, but gave us a, a you know, West Australians in general have a small state mentality and a chip on our shoulders a bit anyway. That really reinforced it, and we just said, you know what, we're going to get these guys. We're going to yep. get them back for yep. all this crap that yep. put us through. And um, when Mick Moldhouse came in and worked out that that was the way to go, even though he's Victorian himself. He was saying, look at the way they're treating you, those, those scumbags over there, they're disgraced, the Eastern Staters. Uh, and he fed off that, and we fed off it, and it drove us. And, and five years, finally five years after we came into the comp, mind you, we had a pretty good squad at the start, um, we won the premiership and yep. took the cup back home. Yep. I want to ask you about your relationship with Mick. Uh, and also the 92 grand final, but we'll have to uh, do that after a break, Barra, so stay with us. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories on 882 6BR. Back in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Adrian Barrich is our special guest. Uh, Barra, the arrival of Mick Malthouse at the West Coast Eagles, I mean, it was a massive change for the entire club and obviously uh, it set them on a path then that uh, led to, to premierships, which was phenomenal. But uh, on a personal level, you and Mick, how did you go? Uh, well, I was... I, was um, I mean, we had such an amazing squad. We had probably, you know... 10 or 15 of the greatest players ever to play the game when you went through Peter Matier and Dean Kemp and Glenn Jakovic and McKenna and Mayne Waring and Worsfold and Swimich and all those Hetty and all those sort of guys. So I was uh, a sort of fringe 20 because it was 20 in those days. Yep. And um, I always like to say that I had a personality clash with Mick. Uh, uh, I believe I had a personality and he didn't and that was uh, <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> so, but he, but he, he drove us hard and he was... To give him his credit, he was a brilliant coach at that time and he was the turning point for the club. He toughened us up. He made us understand the Victorian conditions. He made us train on the sand dunes and in the mud for an entire pre-season. So we toughened up our and strengthened our thighs and we understood you know, what needed to be done to, to win in Melbourne. And once he did that, with the talent and the array of talent that we had, it just, it just all clicked and yeah. winning those two premierships in three years should have almost certainly won three should have won 93 93 was the one that got away mm. the bombers won it with a bunch of kids you know and we were the gun side then by a country mile so that that was a bit of a blue but yeah an amazing man mick and um had an, a fantastic career he is an eagles legend and 
It was funny the way he used to treat the Dockers too. He, he hadn't, had, he, for whatever reason, he didn't have a lot of time for Jared Neesham. And I think it was because Jared didn't believe in the Victorian system and didn't believe in the draft and you know, all the rest of it that went along with it and, he, and refused to play along and probably, you know, maybe didn't have much time for Mick either. I don't know. But um, I never actually heard Mick talk, uh, call the Dockers the Dockers or Fremantle. There was always that mob down the road, you know, those <laughs> fellas, those blokes down the road. He never actually said the name. He couldn't bring himself to say the name in the entire time I was at the club. So he fostered that whole derby mentality of never yep. lose a derby and yep. he drove through the, with the boys that whilst you're at the club you are not to lose a derby mm. you know the Warsfolds and the McKennas and mm. the Jakovic's and the Manies they yep. had this bond yep. to not lose a derby while they were still at the club and so they won the first nine derbies and uh, and 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 fulfilled uh, I suppose you know that that pledge that they wouldn't lose uh, while they were still playing there at his meanest and toughest what were some of the craziest things that Mick made you do? Uh, he was always he was always wearing uh, was that a working just his mind default state. <laughs> yeah, was, but he, he, was, he was always he always had a lot of mind games. But he had his own Achilles heel himself, actually, and it was Kevin Sheedy. Kevin yeah. Sheedy would play Mick on a break in the mind games, and I'll never forget when we turned up at Windy Hill once, and um, Kevin had tied down the windsock. Yeah, and so we get to the game and we're thinking which way is the breeze going? We look up at the windsock. Remember the old days used to have yeah. windsocks, yeah. and we couldn't tell because Sheeds had tied it down, and it was purely to get into the Moldass's head and just send him off. And yeah. Nick would be complaining and going bananas about it and wanted to make an official complaint, and it was to distract Mick from his coaching job. And Sheeds just did it. He, it the waving of the uh, you remember the famous oh, waving yeah. of the jacket that was just to stick it up Mick and. Anything he could do to get into the back of Mick's mind uh, during a match, he did, and and that it, it worked well. And yeah. um, they had a they had a fierce rivalry. But now I can't say anything negative about Mick's coaching because we had Alexander in the first year. He did a great job. He won eleven games on Alexander mm. and got sacked. He won mm. eleven matches in his first ever season and he got sacked. He mm. would have made the finals normally, if the, you know the way it is now. And then we had John Todd, West Australian legend, who was old school for about two for two years, and then Mick came along uh, for ten seasons and uh, and created those two premierships and yep. probably should have had three. So they were amazing times, and we had some amazing players, and none none greater probably in the history of the West Coast Eagles than John Worsfold, arguably the biggest figure in the club's history, first premiership captain, uh, premiership coach as well. And just the guy with the greatest white line fever uh, mentality I've ever seen in the game. You know, go, he would go from Clark Kent to Superman as soon as he crossed the line. It was incredible. You just, yeah. It was like meek and mild and uh, outside of the game. And then when he was on the field, he was like a different bloke. Even if you just played on him in a practice game, he would just whack you. And you go... Wusher, what are you doing? And he'd say, he'd say, get stuffed, you know, but he wouldn't say stuffed. <laughs> you know, like, he was, he was an absolute beast. Yeah. And they were so, they called him Johnny Worst Bloke in Melbourne, and they were so petrified of him. He would yeah. run into packs yeah. as fast as he could just to take blokes out, and I'd never seen a guy operate like that. He was he was amazing, Worsfold, and he was just, a, him and Mick were just massive for the club. Mm. Wusher would be forever at the tribunal if he was playing these days, wouldn't he? That's exactly right, with all mm. the cameras and all the rest of it. And 
he would obviously he would work out things to say to blokes to put them off their games, and uh, he just had this fierce determination. And I remember once they were saying, Nicholas, we used to study our opposition, and and I won't name the player, but. Wusher was playing on this uh, Dockers player in the Derby, and he was going to just petri- he was going to terrify him. And they and Mick said to him, um, "So what do you got on so and so, Wusher?" And Wusher looked down. And, uh, this is in a team meeting. Wusher looked down at his hand, and he said, uh, "He studies fine arts." And he goes, and Mick goes, "What? Well, is that it? That all you got? That's all I'm going to need." <laughs> <laughs> He was just going to give it to him about his uni degree and what a so-and-so he was and yeah. who does that. And you can imagine where he went with oh, it. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Probably oh, can't man. repeat he, most of it on, uh, on radio. Just, uh, oh, he was, and he, Winston <laughs> Abraham, he just he told him that if he got a kick that he'd you know, break his leg or something and Winston never got a kick. And oh, it, was, yeah. it was incredible. Was it, I mean, they're different times, of course. He would never do that now. But, yeah. And I was never like that. But, geez, just to witness it was just... Uh, I've got to write a book one day because I had the front yeah, row seats to all the great <laughs> lunatics, all the great stories, and everything that happened. And surely I've got to bash one out at some stage. <laughs> um, 1992, obviously the premiership year, the, the first premiership for West Coast. Uh, unfortunately, you didn't make the cut for the team on that day, but you and Phil Scott famously uh, wrote a letter to the players. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about that because that's kind uh, of become part of the, the story of that 92 premiership, hasn't it? Mate, you are a genius with your research. That's very good. No wonder that. No wonder. No wonder Flashpoint's going so well. You're very good, mate. Yeah, that's. Um, yeah, that's a funny story because we were we were the sort of leper squad, the guys who who were in the emergency, so just yep. missed out on the team. So we weren't allowed to fly with the team. We weren't allowed to stay in the team hotel lest we distract them. We had to warm them up before the game, which was excruciating. Being in a grand final and not being able to you know, not being able to play, but having to pretend like you're really into it and warm the boys up. The year before in 91, um, I was crook, so I was miles away from playing. But I And I was out on the ground when Angry Anderson was in the Batmobile and all that sort of stuff, So I, I, and it was at Waverley, and we'd lost, so that wasn't as bad as 92. So on the plane over, Phil Scott is just an amazing uh, man, uh, we decided, what you know, what can we do as blokes who aren't in the team? There must be something we can do to inspire the boys. And after a couple of bourbons, uh, our uh, idea was to write a heartfelt letter to the team describing how excruciatingly painful and how upset we were that we were going to miss our place in history, that we weren't going to be remembered as part of the first West Coast Eagles team to take the premiership out of Victoria and that the 20 that were playing will never be forgotten. So don't stuff it up. Don't think you'll get another opportunity. Don't think it's going to come around every year. These are all the words that we wrote in the letter. Do it. And do it for the blokes who won't be there, who just are are in tears at the moment about not being part of this great piece of history. Do it, you blokes. (laughs) Anyway, this is what we wrote. And so I faxed it to um, Trevor Nisbet at uh, the team hotel. And Nizzy Nizzy actually read it out to the team um, the night before the game. And we were chuffed to hear from guys like Dean Kemp and that that said, they might have been just uh, pandering to us, but they said, mate, that really made a difference to yeah. us, knowing yeah. that we were representing all the guys who couldn't be there and that, you know, we that this was our opportunity. We're going to grab it with both hands. And 
Then the team walked down uh, to the the other big blue the Victorians made was we used to stay at the Hilton right next to the MCG, mm. and mm. Mick. Mick, genius in psychology, he said, right, boys, we're not getting the bus to the game. It's too busy or something. He made up some bull twang. I'm sure it wasn't true. He said, we're going to walk down to the Oval. And you can imagine walking to the grand final with Victorians mm. everywhere, right? So we're, the whole team is walking down from the MCG. I don't know if you know where the Hilton is. So yeah, it's a yeah. fair walk. And Victorians are giving it to us left, right and centre, just ripping into us and... It was the perfect, perfect build-up, Tim, because yeah. by the time the boys got in the change rooms, they just wanted to tear doors down and run through walls and just kill Blake. <laughs> so, uh, I'll never forget Carl Langdon. He almost had a punch-up on the way to the ground, on the way down the hill, because some Cats fan was just giving it to, giving him. It to him about his hair and all the rest of it. So he used to dye his hair. That doesn't sound like He's Carl a beautiful at all. man. Oh, mate, he was unbelievable, Carl. He's a beautiful uh, man, but geez, I used to give it to him. He, hey, got, just, he got, yeah, all just, good. Just before we go to a break, mate, have you still got the letter? Um, to tell you the truth, I haven't. Um, I'm not sure where it ended up. It, uh, it might be in the museum at the new West Coast Eagles headquarters, but I, I, I should have kept track of it. Yeah. Um, I think I might I might have a facsimile of it. It ended up in the Eagles book, but um, mm. yeah, it's powerful reading if anyone needs any motivation, yeah. <laughs> especially in times that, like we're going through at the moment. Oh, it might uh, it might inspire a few people, but at least we made. I mean, it's stupid to think your contribution to an AFL grand final was to write a letter, but you've got to hang on to something, Tim. Oh, totally, <laughs> mate. You were there very much in spirit. Absolutely. And you're, you're part of the build-up. Hey, I wanted to ask you about your, uh, your life post-footy, uh, starting with uh, NRL and then your uh, forays into the media, but uh, we need to do that after a, after a break, Barra. So uh, stay with us. This is Inspiring Stories. Adrian Barrage is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My special guest is Adrian Barrett-Barrich. Hey, Barrett, after the Eagles, uh, let's just uh, gloss over a couple of seasons uh, back at Perth, including that elusive best and fairest in, uh, in 1994. But then tell us about uh, your code switch, uh, 1995. Oh. I mean, because you will go down as the only player to, to have, yeah. to have, have yeah. done both. The only one to go from AFL to uh, NRL, yeah, so yeah. from the footy to the rugby league. And, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I was working at <laughs> Channel 9, <laughs> and, and Michael Thompson had recruited me, the great Tomo, uh, to work at Channel 9. Yeah. And I, I was doing the boundary for the NRL, uh, which they had, and then suddenly there was a Western Reds team. And the coach there, Peter Mulholland, he found out about my background. He said, you're pretty stocky, and you've played rugby union. Why don't you have a crack? at rugby league and me being a bit naive, even though I was still, I was 30 and I thought, you know what? I can, sure. a, maybe I will have a crack at this. No one's <laughs> done this before. Let's see what it's like. Mate, how violent is rugby league? It is incredible. The contrast. I mean, uh, okay. Wusher can hit you from any angle. You don't see him coming and it's bad in footy, but getting pole driven by two or three giants, 110, 120 kilo men who are skilled in inflicting yep. pain. 
Oh man, it was took all my courage to play and uh, to be yeah. part of the Western Reds in their inaugural year. And I'll never forget this guy, David Gillespie. His mm. nickname was Cement. Cement. <laughs> that's how tough he was. And he he pile drove me once, and he he leaned over and whispered whispered in my ear, "Why don't you go and rest in the forward pocket?" <laughs> 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 and, and, and I said to Guy, I was playing with him, my Mark Guy, arguably one of the toughest blokes to ever pull on a boot. And I said to him, try to get in the back of his mind, which wasn't a long trip, I can tell you. And I said, MG, what is it you love about rugby league? He says, I love it. When I run into blokes and I hear their ribs crack, I love that. <laughs> oh, man. I was going, what am I doing here? I used to go to the toilets at half time to hide from the guys because the warm-up used to be unbelievable. The way they just pound each other is just frightening. So that... So I did that for a year, and um, and uh, I learned a lot about the game. And I love rugby league because I'm from Canberra, but, geez, yeah. I only played one game, one game yeah. for the Reds. And and after that, you retreated to the relative safety of the media box. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, special comments and boundary writing, and then I went from Channel 9 to Channel 7 because they had the footy. Yep. And I've been there. It'll be my 25th year uh, next year, so 25 years. God, I that's think John. Quickly, John yeah, John Rudd recruited me, and I'm pretty sure he recruited me to put a bit of pressure on this young rising star who was going through the motions and needed to be challenged. Bloke by the name, you might have heard him, heard of him. His name's Basil Zempelis. Yeah, I'm pretty no, sure. <laughs> doesn't get much publicity, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I got recruited to put pressure on the great man, the big fella, and um, How's that it going? worked beautifully because he just took off after that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. I'm happy to play my role, whereas Baz likes to um, be centre stage and he's bloody good at his job, like yourself, and uh, <laughs> off he went as well. So been at Seven ever since and just an amazing organisation and so loyal and so so supportive when my dad passed away and all the rest of it. it was just, they're just fully on board. So I'm a Seven man through and through and um, and happy to say that. Look, we haven't got a, a huge amount of time left, Barra, and I don't want to end on a sad note by any means, but, but tell us just quickly um, the passing of, of your good mate, uh, Maney. Oh, How did mate, you process worst, all that? One of the worst days. One of the worst days of my life that when I found out. I was at the Royal Show, can you believe it? And Sean Menengola, the news director, rang me and I nearly collapsed. Oh, jeepers, I nearly teared up then. And... Um, and then going to the funeral was, you know, 20 times as bad as well because I'd seen Maney on the day that he passed away mm. and we'd, we'd done this story with Justin Langer in the gym as a boxing thing and he had told me um, how upset he was and um, what was going, the thing was going on in his life and uh, uh, to, my, to my eternal regret, and I sp- this is not judging myself, but it ha- would happen to anyone that, you know, I, maybe I could have done more, I could have gone home with him or I don't know. I just feel like maybe... Anyway, I don't want to really go into it, but I really, I've got probably a down on myself a bit that maybe, uh, you know, and I probably couldn't have done anything, but maybe I could have, you know. And yeah. so and then, I, then I found out and just crushed me. And I actually took over his job in the end, um, mm. but we worked closely together. And he was just a fantastic man, and he never said a bad word about anyone, and just had a heart of gold that guy. So yeah, um, yeah that was that was a very very tough time, and we've. I think coming up for 13 years soon, so it's just flown by, isn't yeah. it? So, well, you're doing him proud, mate. Uh, taking over his role, uh, and and get onto that book, Barry, because you've obviously got uh, a million stories to tell 
Um, it's just a shame yeah. we didn't get to hear all of them in this hour. But we appreciate well, mate, you, you might... uh, sharing the ones that you have. Yeah, good on you, Tim. Thanks for having me on, and thanks to Baron O'Day. And uh, yeah, it was really good to be a part of it and, and to pique that interest in perhaps putting it down and, and getting it in writing. And who knows, yeah, in 12 it. months' time, maybe the book will be out there. But I'll see you at work, <laughs> buddy. You're a good man. Thank you, Barrett. You've been listening All to the in- best, buddy. Thank you, mate. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.